welcome to the next episode of Where Knowledge Stems From. Today's guest is Dr. Matthew Hoekstra. Dr. Hoekstra graduated from Carleton University in 2022 with a PhD in biology and a specialization in biochemistry. He's an experienced scientist with extensive knowledge surrounding biochemistry, molecular biology, and cell biology. He has practical experience in assay development, method development and application, and protein enzyme purification and characterization. He has been published in several different journals, such as Analytical Biochemistry, Journal of Biochemistry, and Star Protocols. He also has a patent based around development of a peptide-based inhibitor. After completing his PhD, Dr. Hoekstra did his postdoc at Carleton University in the lab of Dr. Myron Smith. He now works as a science manager at Food Cycle Science, a company that aims to reduce the food waste crisis by creating tools that can give the consumers the power to sustainably recirculate their food waste. In this episode, we discuss Dr. Hoekstra's unique path into science and research, how food waste contributes to the increase of greenhouse gases, and what he does at Food Cycle Science to combat this issue. We also discuss the effects of plastics on the environment and how bioplastics can become a viable replacement due to their susceptibility to being degraded by enzymes, along with the challenges their implementation would have on different industries. So join me for a great chat with Dr. Matthew Hoekstra. Dr. Matthew Hoekstra, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No problem. Uh, thank you for being patient with the 30 minutes of technical difficulties. Uh, it's the joys of technology, man. No problem yeah, at all. Yeah. So I appreciate your patience in that regard. Uh, I'd like to start off the podcast by asking what drove you to want to do research? How did you get into this in the first place? You know, biology and chemistry were the only two classes I only really ever enjoyed in high school. Uh, rest of the time, I was really just showing up, uh, doing the work and the grades, but wasn't really enjoying it. But that changed in when I was in grade 11. I was 16, so uh, woke up one day and uh, couldn't see out of my right eye. So things progressed over the last uh, next couple of weeks and uh, ended up losing my right eye to uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria infection. Which was uh, crazy because as a kid, I know I was 16, but still, uh, you get sick, you go to the doctor, you get antibiotics, and you get better. So I wasn't even aware this was thing existed. So as as I was uh, bedridden, recovering once I was home out of the hospital, uh, very painful couple weeks there, really started to dive in just online and really trying to learn what happened and learn all about this stuff. Um, so came back to school slowly and, uh, still biology and chemistry were the only two classes, as I said, that I enjoyed and I really started to try and excel at it. So when it came time for grade 12 and, uh, you're applying to your different universities, different classes, I went with science-based ones cause really had an interest from my own, um, life experiences that happened with that. And that really drove me towards, uh, finding out just how things work. And I figured what well, you can't go wrong with a subject that you enjoy and, um, yeah, that you enjoy and that you're half decent at. So that's why I applied and, uh, was accepted here at Carleton university in the biochemistry program. I was really happy at the time. Cause, uh, like I said, I did a lot of time just researching general things, such as antibiotic resistance that had uh, obviously personally impacted me and really drove me to find out uh, really how things happen in your body and the natural world. must have been difficult to go through growing up because I don't know if antibiotic resistance has been as prominent back then as it is now, and I think it's continued to growing. Are you worried about that? 
first off, it uh, it could always be worse, right? So uh, they thought at one point it was going up the optic nerve into my brain. That could have been much worse. So I'm just thankful all I lost was the eye. Could uh could have been a lot worse. Second of all, yeah, there's tons. I think the WHO just released something a couple of years ago about a big problem with antibiotic resistant and bacteria. And this one, I'm not sure where this came from, but there's a lot of uh, clinical ones that happen in hospital for people who are recovering from surgery and other types of infections where it's really big deal because you're trying to recover from a major surgery and then you get this infection that's probably evolved in the hospital to some regard or in the general population. And uh, now your body's also got to fight to recover from whatever major surgery you had, as well as now fight this new infection. So definitely scary, but uh, hopefully there's new uh, advancements in different uh, antimicrobials that might uh, help in those type of situations in the future. Do you know where it happened? Where you got it from? No, no, I have some ideas where I worked at a golf course at the time and there was a club washer that I was using. So naturally thinking, you know, bacteria in the ground can also produce antibiotics and naturally they can become antibiotic resistant. So very well could have been something like that. The only clue was after the whole ordeal was done, went back a month later and the ophthalmologist saw a scar and the dead tissue in my eye, and it went pretty far back. So something probably went into it and just festered back to the optic nerve and hung around there and started to uh, propagate and uh, grow from there. Wow, okay. So that, And that's what kind of set off your interest in science and in biochemistry, and then you got into your undergraduate degree. How did you progress from there in terms of deciding on graduate degrees? For first year, I was uh, enjoyed the classes a lot of the biology and chemistry classes, you always have to take those other ones in the beginning, and I wasn't as good as that uh, in some of those subjects. Uh, still learned a lot, though, such as in computer science and what have you. Um, but really started to more take off in even, I'd say, year three. First and second year, took a lot of coursework, a lot of lab work, which I really liked. I'm definitely an applied learner, so it helped uh, really hone in some of the actual practical theory that goes into a lot of different uh, subjects and uh, areas of science. So that's, yeah, first and second year really was just trying to find, you know, how I learn versus, you know, maybe how the general public learns. I'm not so much someone who can just sit down and read a book and absorb the material. I really have to actively engage and think about what I'm reading and apply it to some real-life scenario I find helps me a lot. So... That's why I always like the lab courses, because you're learning about the theory and then applying it in a basic laboratory experiment. Yeah, I find it kind of disappointing that a lot of the times schools and high schools, universities don't actually teach you how to learn. They will give you material, they'll you know lecture it for you, but they're not really um, teaching you how to comprehensively understand this material, which I find is a little challenging, especially if you're first, second year, just delving into all of the challenges of academia. Yeah, and it's interesting. If I would have taken what I learned finally and started to apply in third year when I really started to take off uh, in high school, maybe, you know, certain grades would have been better. But at the same, t- you know, it's always, uh, it's it's tough because any of those high school teachers, elementary teachers, there's not just one class or student in the class, right? It's right. 20 to 30 uh, most of the time. So it's hard to individually identify those students who might learn a different way and uh, I think all teachers do their best to uh, make sure every student is understanding stuff, but actually applying uh, that type of more 
deeper learning, I think is a thing a lot of people have to find out on their own over time. And the worst thing to do, I think, is keep doing what you've been doing the whole time and hoping a different result occurs, right? If you realize that you're not getting the grades you want, you're not retaining the information and knowledge you want, then maybe it's time to switch up the way you uh, address, you know, studying and everything else that comes with it. So after you finished your undergraduate degree, you went to master's and then I believe you fast tracked, right? Yeah, it, uh, like I said, I was always doing good enough in school that I was setting, and I wanted to set myself up for some type of graduate degree if I wanted to go that way. I didn't know whether it was grad school, maybe it was pharmaceutical, yeah, pharmaceutical school uh, to become a pharmacist, all those different avenues. There's tons you can go into with the BSc. So I just wanted to make sure my grades were high enough to not limit my options for that. I knew I didn't want to do med school. I never had an interest in being a medical doctor, medical practitioner. So, um, yeah, after third year, I really went home and thought I wanted to get into industry specifically, uh, t- started talking to people in the industry of pharmaceuticals and really enjoyed that research. Again, I think it was something a little to do with what happened to me if I can somehow help uh, people in similar situations uh, that don't have to go through, you know, these uh, big traumatic, uh, you know, life-changing uh, health events that right. maybe uh, that could have definitely been a factor in driving that type of uh, motivation. Yeah, exactly. Towards that industry. So went home and then got to talk to a lot of people that summer and came back uh, knowing that I had to at least do an honors thesis. I was just in the general program, again to the honors and still I had the grades to transfer into that in the last semester. And then Dr. Wilmore here was uh, gracious enough it must have looked bad, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before the deadline, rushing into an office to try to find a supervisor. But um, he had no lab space, but was open to a research-based thesis. And then given all the computational programming and a bit of the uh, computer science skills that I learned over undergrad courses, I added a computational component to it. So it was still research, just nice. more uh, right in silico versus actual uh, in vitro and vivo experiments. So that, uh, that was great. So finished that, uh, undergrad thesis and then, yeah, applied for the masters here. Uh, fourth year I had a class with Dr. Bigger and really enjoyed that. And knowing that I had an interest in the pharmaceutical field and he had a background in that, uh, type of research from his postdoc. I asked him if he had an opening in his lab and he uh, was able and willing to take me that uh, that fall in September. I started in 2017 and doing my master's in his laboratory. Awesome. And then you ended up fast-tracking, getting into your PhD? Yeah, so the first two years flew by. I kind of went to Dr. Bigger saying, I want to learn as many techniques as I can. Right. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, just show up every day and um, give it your all and as you progress, we'll introduce new techniques and all that. Because at that time, again, even with the honors thesis in my undergrad, I never had serious laboratory experience other than just the teaching lab. So I really wanted to get that. I felt like I was a little behind in that area. Mm-hmm. So really tried to throw myself right in and uh, I hit the ground running. So right away was purifying proteins and then quickly was looking at ways to develop assays to measure lysine demethylase activity. Uh, We ended up going with a commercial kit, but uh, I believe there's one of my assays that might be picked up by a new grad student at some point here because it worked. It just uh, didn't work that well. And at that time, I thought it was only doing a master's, so didn't have the time 
to tease around with an assay to try to figure out and it uh, might have not worked in the end i still think it's uh, potentially an idea but uh, we'll come back to that so yeah did that uh, and was flying for two years getting good results really trying to learn as much as i could because at the end of the day two years isn't a whole lot when it comes to research so uh, that's when me and him kind of just had a discussion about this option. Big, daunting, comprehensive exam you had to pass. Right. Um, so, and it's not even about your subject, your thesis. It's kind of just an absolute, you know, quantification of your total knowledge surrounding whether it's biology, biochemistry, molecular biology. The proposed project I was going to do, which was a continuation of the research I was already doing, Started off as in vitro biochemistry, but was slowly adopting into more molecular biology. Mm-hmm. So really had to um, really studied well to make sure to try and have the biggest grasp over everything, all the pathways. How long were you preparing for it? Um, I probably gave myself a good four to six months of Whoa, really okay. researching um, because it's you want to you want to go in and make sure that's clear that uh, you're prepared and um, able to perform in that fast track so that you can do the PhD and all the other stuff that comes with it. And it was all necessary knowledge to understand um, how, you know, what exact cell, uh, cell work you'd be doing, how these different pathways might respond to your proposed experiments and stuff, and how you would just wouldn't be reading, you know, artifactual data. Right. And what was uh, the setting like? Did you have multiple different uh, supervisors yeah. asking questions? Yeah, yeah. You got your, your supervisor, of course. Um, with that, you need some co-supervisor. You need uh, some internal, some external uh, investigators so okay. this got all that together and then uh, yeah and when was it October 2019 I believe is when I had it so a little after two years of the uh, beginning the masters so I uh, passed that fast track so that was good and then uh, the real work um, not that that wasn't real work but then the real grind started for the next uh, three years mm-hmm. to try to get that uh that PhD degree, so really throwing myself into the research and uh, all that. So. so that means you were at the height of your PhD uh, degree research during the pandemic. Yeah. What was yeah, that yeah. like? So that, uh, yeah, it started pandemic, so that was 2020. Mm-hmm. So that was within a few months of making the transition from the master's to the PhD. Uh, the first couple months, we weren't allowed in the lab at all. For obvious reasons, people are still getting a handle of how to work with this uh, virus going around. So that uh, it was a blessing in disguise because it gave me a chance after the comprehensive. I'd been putting off some writing, some data analysis. Uh, so it gave me a chance to catch up with that, uh, really start doing some more literature collection, even started chipping away at an intro for a thesis because I had the time trying to make, you know, most of the time that I had for those first few months. Uh, eventually we were informed that we could come back into the lab, but, um, with the size of the lab, you couldn't have everyone in. So there was max three people allowed in at a time and we had to, and at one point they were monitoring to some degree. Um, but they, yeah, we were allowed three, no more than three people allowed at a time. And we had around six grad students and postdocs combined. So we simply split it up to AM and PM. Mm-hmm. So whenever you wanted to come in, you had till noon, one o'clock is what we worked out. And then whoever was PM was in around that time and then left whenever they wanted to. So it was a relatively shorter days for the people working in the morning. Yeah, half days, exactly. So um, 
Unless Maybe. you wanted to come in at like 5 a.m. Yeah, which I always was in around 6. I'd literally just roll out of bed, throw on a ball cap, and come in and do all the other stuff after. Easier said than done. Yeah, so that's didn't make a lunch. We'd just have breakfast and then roll out the door. So most of the time just brought breakfast where there was just a muffin and a coffee. So I imagine it was calm and quiet on campus during that time. Oh, yeah, it was dead. Yeah. It was, uh, it, there was no one other than in our building and then had all the barriers up and stuff. So it was right. nice. Uh, I know a lot of people went, uh, didn't see a lot of faces for a long time. So even though we were separated in the lab, at least you were around people. So that was nice. Um, working on projects together. Then again, I wasn't allowed to work even on my thesis. We had actually a COVID research project going with a peptide inhibitor. So that was the main reason we were allowed initially on campus, mm-hmm. but eventually they opened it up to all the labs. What was the finding of that research? It was uh, just in vitro. Mm-hmm. Uh, proof of concept that you know these peptide inhibitors really can uh, inhibit more than just uh, you know cellular pathways we're targeting other lysine demethylases that it could also bind to that binding site in the uh, COVID virus and antagonize its natural interaction with that ACE2 receptor. Was the idea to prevent or mitigate its ability to enter cells? Yeah or once it's entered cells to you know antagonize that interaction so it doesn't uh, continue to replicate and then uh, hopefully you know mitigate some type of good cellular homeostasis leading to a recovery or um, yeah basically recovery try to give it another option to people who were infected right it's not a precautionary type thing you're trying to limit the ability for a host to be infected it's once they're infected do we have an option right okay that's kind of the theory behind that as part of your research during your PhD, you have uh, developed a peptide-based inhibitor, and you got a patent around that. Is that correct? Yes, that is. Could you go into a bit more detail about uh, what the patent involves and what's the process of filing a patent? I think I should just start by saying I'm not a patent lawyer. Uh, if you do have any ideas for any intellectual property, uh, any inventions of your own novel ideas, you should definitely consult a patent lawyer. This is how I understand it works in this field, but it definitely varies depending on the type of you know invention, novel idea you are looking to patent. It's your own experience with a specific thing, tasks you work with. Exactly. Okay. I'll give some quick background. This started with just uh, a side project during uh, the first couple of years of when I was still doing the master's before I fast-tracked to the PhD. I went to my supervisor, and we've been doing different binding arrays for different lysine methyltransferases. So I figured uh, the demethylases I was working on, they also have binding domains, and they obviously bind to their substrate. So let's try to do that on a binding array, and let's see what we get. Could you just unpack what a binding array is? So it's uh, mobilized peptides. That's on a nitrocellulose film. And you can systematically either mutate uh, specific amino acids around that peptide, uh, in question, you can do a degenerative array, so you have one fixed position of a lysine, and then you can group amino acids based on physical properties, chemical properties, so on, and then get a good idea of which you know specific residue surrounding a centralized, in this case, lysine residue, but it can be done with you know for an arginine demethylase. It could have been uh, the uh, centralized arginine residue, right? Any you know, for phosphatases, it could be a centralized uh, phosphorus residue. Or, sorry, um, centralized um, phosphorylated 
whichever uh, amino acid residue. So um, basically, I took a, a pro, uh, one of the demethylases, KDM5C I was working on, and threw it on and saw which specific peptides it bound to. And then subsequently, uh, from those results, developed second and third iterations. This is all with Dr. Hamanta at Hickory, at, uh, who's now at the OHRI awesome scientist and uh, he was really a great mentor during this and we subsequently went through these peptide arrays and kept throwing KDM5C on and saw what bound and it's just tagged with histidine tag from the purification so we used a specific anti-hist probe in order to uh, illuminate the binding site so we could see which peptides it bound to. So it all started just from a side project and I think that's great for anyone who's doing a master's or PhD because you always have incubation times and you always have times where you're waiting for results. So I really tried to optimize. And again, I thought this was only a master's at this point. I only had two years. So I was really trying to get the most out of those two years and really try to use the most of my time effectively as I can, both on my thesis project and what ended up being a pretty successful side project in which we took the actual hits from the binding array, started synthesizing those peptides in silico, um, well, designed them in silico, printed them, and then synthesized them on beads, cleaved them off the beads so we had these peptides in solution and could then study the effects in, you know, in vitro assays as well as start to put them into cells and see if we can monitor changes in you know, H3K4 methylation and potential substrate methylation, non-histone substrate methylation, uh, all as a result of this initial binding array that I did. So all that uh, followed through and we were able to submit a patent for it because we saw significant activity in vitro and that was followed up in cells. Cool. And then you, the, what's the process of submitting a patent? Um, so my supervisor at the time did that a lot. Uh, I've submitted other provisional patents since. Uh, provisional patents, you just really need a good idea of what you want to design. I believe you have a year I think some of the times you can get two years, but you have a year to at least get a prototype going so you can submit an actual patent. But the provisional one is really just a proof of concept and some type of data schematics to support that this is, you know, an, an, you know a novel idea and that it has potential to, you know, actually work. Um, and then filing the actual patent, you need to actually, you know, submit data with that to support that it is in fact you know this novel idea is in fact working so some of those that in vitro assays i said i was doing along with the initial binding arrays we submitted with the patent to show that you know this peptide was functionally binding to kdm5c and in somehow way or another inhibiting its demethylase activity out of curiosity does Submitting a patent during that time when you're figuring out how to make the prototype, are you protected? Because you, you filed some, you said, provisional patent? Yeah, a patent. provisional patent, you are protected. So, uh, And I have another one of those on the go right now. So that's why. They give you a year. So that mm-hmm. way you just can't go around submitting provisional patents for anything. Right. Right. And then if you're not following it up, you're just not allowed to patent any idea without actually showing that one you've done it and two that you're able to. I'm sure there's been cases where this has been allowed and stuff. Uh, I'm not a patent lawyer, so you'd have to follow up with them. The exact specifics of what's required and the time periods you have to submit uh, you know, subsequent patent applications after the provisional patent. But the provisional patent gives you, I believe it's a year, to really uh, try to get something going that you can at least begin some patent application. 
during the year that you've had the time to develop the prototype, right before that, uh, did you have to submit something in order to say that I'm going to be working on this, I need protection while I get the prototype running? Uh, no, that's so a provisional patent, uh, recent one I've also filed. Um, we are been a part of filing, I should uh, clarify. It's more just the idea and some basic schematics, basic data, proof that it's able to be done. Okay. But for the actual patent, you really need to classify what exactly you're patenting. And this becomes a big thing with biologics. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a peptide, you need to define the exact binding region. And it's always better to go smaller so that you're more protected. So this is the same with if you're patenting an enzyme, that you need to submit the actual sequence. And hopefully you actually have a few iterations of sequences you know, different mutations that might even improve the activity. That um, that way you're fully protected. Uh, but again, for each of those, you know, subsequent mutations, you need to get your ducks in a line to make sure that your intellectual property is protected so that small changes can't be made and then a separate patent can be refiled. Okay. And then, actually, I think I met you during your PhD because uh, you were TAing one of my courses that I was taking with Dr. Kyle Bigger. Yeah. Uh, you were, was it biophysical techniques? I believe so, yeah, yeah the third yeah. year. So that's when I met you the first time. And it was over Zoom during that time. Then you ended up uh, finishing, graduating your uh, PhD. I remember it was the summer that I also graduated from my undergrad because we were, I think, graduating at the same time. Sure. Then you got on my tax, right? Yeah. Yes. Can, you, can you explain what a MyTax is and how does it work? It's just a grant. There's other ones out there. There's the NSERC Alliance grant, mm-hmm. um, but it's a grant to try to link uh, academia and industry. Okay. So mutual research, well, really more for industry. They have a specific research question. Maybe it's a product. Maybe it's an idea, uh, an adaptation to existing technology. And they um, want to see if it works. So that way they put in minimal fund. Maybe the company even doesn't have access to a laboratory. They need uh, some, mm-hmm. you know, an individual with uh, some level of experience and access to a lab to do this research. So that's, uh, yeah, I was finishing up the PhD and I was approached by Dr. Smith who proposed this research project, making sure that I knew it was a one-year my tax. So it, uh, so yeah, that was in February or March, and I finished. Of this year? Sorry? No, of the last year. Last year, okay. And I finished in the end of August, uh, about a year. Actually, my one-year defense date uh, anniversary was just last week. So, yeah, it was about a year and a half ago that he approached, saying he had this idea in this local company who was interested in a specific research question. Um, and then it's incentive for the company, because usually if it's early enough, they matched uh funding three to one. So nice. for example, the, the company puts in five grand and my tax supports 15 grand. So it's really tried to drive that initial collaboration between mm-hmm. academia and industry. And so what was the research question that you guys were trying to answer at the time? Trying to see, so the company uh, who I work for now is Food Cycler Science. They're a food waste diversion company. Food waste is a big issue. Uh, takes up a lot of, if you just keep uh, track of the amount of waste in your trash, Uh, On average, it's 40% is the food waste from any given household. uh, And that significantly leads to both uh, environmental impacts. Of course, greenhouse gases produced from landfills and methane emissions, all that stuff. So they're really trying to reduce the amount of food waste to end up in landfills. 
uh, through their uh, patented technology. So they had a question, though, given that they're in food waste, there's other waste problems such as plastics and bioplastics. Uh, I say bioplastics just because Canada has put into, and they were talking about it when they put this project proposal uh, together, and now it's come to fruition, this ban on you know petroleum-based single-use plastics by the end of this year, which is 2023. So their question is, is there another way in general that bioplastics and plastics can be degraded? And then, of course, uh, their technology is to decrease food waste. So, hey, can we adopt everything into one system to help mitigate? Because, of course, there's always a problem with separating uh, especially what they call as um, contaminated plastic. So, you know, yogurt cups, for example, you're supposed to rinse out from the sounds of it. It can really gum up the works. If you have a, you know, a little bit of yogurt's one thing, but if you're suddenly recycling tons of yogurt cups and they all have a little bit of yogurt, that impact compounds. So that uh, same with K-cups are supposed to be recyclable, but you're actually supposed to take the, you know, use coffee ground section, the mesh out of it. Uh, so that type of compostable plastic was the big one on their mind. You know, can we do something to help mm-hmm. mitigate this problem on Earth as well, along with food waste? So I guess this is a twofold problem. One is the uh, food waste that we suffer from because landfills are filling up. Uh, I was reading yesterday that Environment and Natural Resource Canada puts it at about 11 million tons, which is roughly around 20% of all food produced in Canada is gone to waste, which is quite a large amount of food. Uh, because it's generating CO2 and, and, and methane emissions yep. all year round. Knowing the adverse side effects of having our growing landfills be impacted by continuous emissions, you guys are developing composting equipment, right? Um, well, it's just the natural byproduct of the technology. So right. composting uh, implies the more microbial assist, uh, assisted degradation of food waste, right? that you have this bacteria going through mm-hmm. and uh, through a compost pile. That's why it generates so much heat on its own. You're supposed to mix it up and stuff, give it aeration so that uh, aerobic bacteria can breathe. What Composting implies that microbial assisted degradation of food waste. This is more just uh, mechanical. Got it. Um, reducing the food waste volume by tons. It's like mm-hmm. over 90%. It's crazy. The first time I used it, I was blown away. And the mass is pretty substantial too. I, on average, it depends, right? Gr- coffee grounds, you won't get a huge decrease in mass, but you know, carbs and breads, you're going to see a huge decrease. Anything that retains also a lot of water, a lot of vegetables, you see a large decrease in mass. But on average, it's like 70% of the decrease in mass is what I observe. So you essentially have developed these machines that you can put on your kitchen countertop, yeah, for example? Yeah, exactly. A Just, lot of people. Kitchen, uh, some people keep it out in the garage, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and they keep the bucket in their kitchen. But that's exactly it. And we're seeing, um, it's funny, when I started working there, I we went home and we were cleaning out the fridge one day. And we've gotten, uh, me and my partner, have gone a lot better at buying appropriate amounts of food. It is annoying because you got to go to the store more. Right. But there was one week where we're like, this is getting out of hand. Mm-hmm. Like we got two loaves of bread that aren't completely finished here that we're chucking. We got fruits and veggies. You know, some fruits like bananas we can freeze and make muffins and stuff out of. But um, you really become a little more cognizant. And I think that's it. Um, there's a big problem with waste in the world. But uh, if everyone can just do a little bit, I think there can be uh, and just be cognizant of the amount of pollution, amount of waste they're producing. There might be a big uh, outcome in the end. 
So how, how large is the machine? Would it fit on this table, for example? Oh, yeah. yeah there's, so there's a smaller one called the FC30. That was the original one. That's about, uh, I'm going to say, the size of a bread maker. That one's more appropriate. We even have a, you know, a curate, one of those pod-based coffee makers. I'm going to mm-hmm. say around the same size as that. And that's two and a half liter buckets. So, you know, for a small family of two or three, two parents and a kid, that should be fine. There's bigger ones that are five liters, so it's double the volume. And uh, that's good for a lot. Uh, we have a lot of employees with families with two kids and stuff. So four feet, people, five people, and that seems to suffice just well. Uh, and then uh, they're constantly trying to improve those type of nice. uh, designs. And so uh, the idea is that you can chuck any food waste, like, for example, bones or stuff that has gone molded. Yeah. Just put it in. I've thrown in full, you know, you go to Costco and get those uh, pre-roasted chickens and mm-hmm. stuff. Makes an easy dinner some nights when you're uh, beat from the lab. And we've thrown in uh, whole chicken carcasses. And so that's all the bones, everything yeah. that's uh, not going to, you know, taken off the meat of the bone for whatever wraps or what have you. And we've thrown that in and that's completely uh disintegrated the next day okay so so how does it work exactly what does it do to the to this it heats and pulverizes the food waste so pulverizing increase in the surface area for the heating to remove uh, a lot of weight associated with moisture Mm -hmm. and uh, that's effectively what helps it decrease in both volume and mass okay and that's really what brings down the mass so you can fill it up and then it just crushes everything essentially yeah and then yeah, that's brings it. it down to a, a usual uh in the bigger bucket a usual wet food uh from our municipal studies uh it's around 1.5 kilograms of wet food waste so out the output you know you're usually getting around 300 400 grams uh and i get those uh results consistently in the labs so definitely around 70 percent mass but again it depends if you throw in a if you have a whole load of coffee grounds, you're going to see less, right? Because mm-hmm. they're already pretty fine particles. But uh, if you throw in a whole bunch of cabbage, for example, that's gone bad, uh, you'd probably see more 70% mass loss just because there's so much water. Right. And you're going to get uh, a lot finer shredding of that uh, you know, leafy greens. So is the heating up sufficient to kill any foodborne pathogens like salmonella, for example, or E. coli? Yeah, we've done um, fecal coliform. E. coli and salmonella. I've done E. coli just with our uh, working in Dr. Smith's lab. We've mm-hmm. got access to a lot of uh, fun bacteria and fungus, so have been spiking, uh, and we're BSL two certified. So been spiking food waste with E. coli, uh, running it through and not through the food cycler, and um, we're seeing, um, yeah, basic over ninety nine percent killing of all that uh, E. coli. And then we've had third-party analyses do salmonella and uh, other stuff, looking to get listeria and all of them, the cappy done. So, But all the ones we've done, it's over 99% uh, killing of the bacteria. PSL is biosafety level, yeah. too? Okay. Yeah, yeah, so you need certain levels to work with certain pathogens, foodborne pathogens. Right, right. And that's why it's uh, we want, I want to get those uh, experiments done because it's uh, if you have a compost pile and you're throwing out you know, chicken scraps that actually have salmonella and that's just going to propagate potentially in that mm-hmm. pile. It's a nice warm pile in the summer. Uh, last thing you want is, you know, it's slowly to run off if it rains into a garden and it's continuing to propagate where kids are playing and stuff. And, right. Okay. Uh, touching their face. So this way it's a safe byproduct to handle with your hands and it's killed all of those, uh, potential foodborne pathogens once you ground this all up so you have a mass that's left over what can you do with it what's the end product use 
so right now, what uh, we find is it's actually very concentrated in a variety of nutrients, right? Mm-hmm. Just like compost, it slowly breaks down. Uh, we're not using bacteria, but it's still a grounded mix of concentrated nutrients from your food. So very high in organic matter, high in the basic three for plant growth, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. Um, so what uh, we've uh, suggested in the beginning to kind of close that circle on food waste is uh, to avoid it from the landfills and uh, uh, generals if you have a vegetable garden if you have a garden any type of bed outside you can put it in the garden and till it in at uh, appropriate ratios and i say appropriate because just like you wouldn't take you know if you have a tomato plant you wouldn't dump a whole bag of fertilizer on it you wouldn't dump a whole thing of compost you mix it in at appropriate ratios and uh, you're allowing those nutrients to be reincorporated into the soil the nice thing too about mixing is you're allowing that natural bacteria, the fungus, you know, trichoderma, for example, in the soil to propagate throughout this now homogenized soil food uh, waste byproduct mixture, allowing those nutrients to disperse and be uh, either uptaken by the plants or converted by the bacteria and fungi into nutrients that can be taken up by the plant. Okay, so it's it's actually quite useful because rather than going and buying fertilizer from the grocery store, you can just use your own foods that you've already paid for and ideally eliminate waste from the landfill which will eliminate some co2 and methane emissions so it's an all-around good kind of cycle to is is that the idea of food cycle yeah yeah i definitely think especially in the vegetable gardens you're using your food waste to grow more food Mm -hmm. our food cyclers are in over 100 municipalities now our municipality division and sale everyone there's such i love working there everyone's so nice um but uh, they're absolutely doing great and working a lot with rural and uh, indigenous communities. So um, rural, a big one, uh, we have a big case study out in Nelson, BC. Mm -hmm. Uh, So very rural community in between uh, the border, you know, in between really Calgary and Vancouver. Uh, But they had a big pest problem, specifically bears. So they'd have compost bins and bears coming in, ripping it apart. So now you got it, one, clean it up, it's a mess. And you're inviting more, uh, you know, past bears. So since they've started this, uh, I believe they've seen a large decrease in the amount of bears in the area just because there's not this accessible food for the bears mm-hmm. anymore, this food waste. Um, so they have a whole setup there. And uh, actually, if you move to Nelson, BC now, I believe you get uh, a food cycler. It's subsidized from uh, the local government there. So that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, we've had great feedback from that. A lot of good data coming in and uh, continuing uh, to crunch that data to really get a good idea of the positive impacts of both, you know, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from the area uh, and everything that comes with reducing your overall food waste. But again, our main business right now is uh, really trying to partner with these rural, these indigenous communities where. Uh, have a problem with food sovereignty and all that. And we're working with a great professor at a York University, uh, Cal Lake, and who's really given a good idea and really doing the research into food sovereignty and, uh, you know, good food structure in these more rural indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's silly to not, you know, you have your concerns about food production, uh, getting food out to people, but to not think about the waste that comes out on the other end is uh it's just uh it's it's good to think about because uh with one comes the other that's a good point especially because when we're wasting food 
um, that could be eaten potentially, we're not only wasting the food itself, but all of the time, resources, and effort went into producing that food itself. Yeah, and you just have a collection of all. There's still tons of good stuff in this food. Mm -hmm. So how can we, you know, use this food waste in other positive means that also doesn't send it to the landfill and just contribute to an existing problem? You mentioned earlier that uh, there's a contamination in these recycling components because I remember reading that, I don't want to give a percentage because I may be wrong on that, but a large percentage of the plastics that we try to recycle don't actually end up being recycled just because they're very contaminated. Yeah. So um, what would you say that people should be doing in terms of cleaning it? I guess just cleaning it better. Well, that's it's, it's, that's exactly it. You just need to be you know, mindful of what you're putting in recycling. But at the same time, it's tough to remind, especially if you're running out of the house first thing in the morning, mm-hmm. right, to remember that when you get home uh, from that Keurig K-cup, you know, separate the two components, you get home. It's hard to stay on top of. Same with washing out yogurt containers, for example. Um, so it's it's the best we got. I think there's things that uh, could be improved. But to be honest, I don't even know if I have any suggestions just because it's such a complex answer and also i try to be uh unbiased because i'm just recalling now yesterday i definitely didn't rinse out my yogurt cup when i put it in the recycling so uh i'm not uh, gonna try to pretend that i'm this all-star uh no no yeah that's fair recycler here i think i'm in the same same uh same bin as you but uh but the fact is i had no idea that was even a thing until started working here so maybe start uh a good beginning is getting that type of information and knowledge out there so people are aware, you know, this type of uh, material. You mentioned earlier bioplastics. So I wanted to get into that a little bit because in the early 20th century, we started, um, I think it was Leo Bakeland. He invented probably the first synthetic plastic, which was phenol, I believe, a fossil fuel byproduct. And he also used... Um, formaldehyde and so that was the first use of of synthetic plastic and then you know it kicked off and after world war ii with use in planes and electrical components and then advertising was just so good at making it seem like this very cheap product which it was very affordable and it had great uses because it doesn't break like glass it can be molded into anything really and it also was used in you know consumer products it was used in toys household appliances packaging materials even medical equipment the problem is that we seem to have not cared as much about the environmental concerns and impact plastic waste had for for many years because you know it takes forever to decompose and even when it does it mostly just breaks down into smaller microplastics so could you just shed some light on the differences between that conventional plastic versus the biodegradable ones yeah sure so the uh you're definitely right it sounded at the time like this all-purpose material right and it doesn't degrade which is definitely good for some purposes Uh, You can heat it up a lot and it won't lose structure, which is great, say, for uh, sterile things with, uh, you know, hospitals, that type of stuff where you need 100% sterile plastics. Um, But the use in other things, whether it's, uh, you know, again, I'm going to go to food packaging because I've been surrounded by that for some time now, but uh, even plastic bottles and all that uh, single-use disposable, you know, cutlery, plates, 
Um, I think people, it's great because you can pump out a lot. No one wants to bring silverware to a picnic, right? right. You don't want the ceramic plates to break in transport. So why not just grab some paper plates or and plastic ideally, plates, sorry, and cutlery. And ideally just throw them out after that's you're done. That's it. And then that's it. And everybody's happy. But uh, that's exactly it. With everyone in the world using it as frequently as they did and it not degrading at all um you know even with food waste and compost piles it takes a while but eventually the pile does shrink more and more uh, you got to maintain it properly and you know take away any byproduct get different piles going but still it does shrink over time versus you have a whole pile of these plastics and it's not going to shrink over hundreds of years so um that's why i think these biodegradable plastics are definitely an improvement. They're not without their own faults. Um, a lot degrade in specific environments. Uh, you know, temperature, PLA is a main one. It optimally degrades above, I believe, 60 degrees, and it's got to be a moist, you know, environment with uh, environmental water present. Uh, a couple studies have shown it actually doesn't degrade hardly in uh, a year's time in salt water. Interesting. Uh, I assume that different salt ions are inhibiting the hydrolysis of the bonds holding together the bioplastic polymers, inhibiting that water, uh, accessing those sites for natural hydrolysis. But uh, yeah, the petroleum-based plastics, definitely, I understand why they were taken off, but I think it's good that, uh, you know, collectively, Canada's just the latest in a variety of nations banning the real easy ones that we could live without, right? The plastic bags is mm -hmm. a huge one because it's the biggest issue in there because there's tons, you know, they're pulling up fish from the ocean, whether it's fishing practices or investigative research, and there's plastic in the bellies of these, you know, fish, uh, wildlife marine mammals so that's uh, i like those seeing those advancements but you also need adoption from everyone okay now is everyone going to bring their own bag are we going to switch back to paper bags so it's silly to impose those type of regulations laws uh, legislation without having a practical response to it too mm -hmm. uh, but i think generally a lot of people were already you know mindful to that degree you know we don't need plastic bags every time when we can remember them in our trunk we'll grab reusable bags i know a lot of my family members were doing it even before uh, this type of legislation came down nice. and uh, i was even at the store the other day and uh, they have the paper bags or the reusable bags they're selling quite cheap you know it's at a dollar or something so that is good because it, uh, fair one does a little bit, right? It, it can have a big compound effect. So Canada's just the latest in a variety of countries uh, imposing that type of legislation. So my partner and I, when we go grocery shopping, we also use reusable bags, whether it's from the store or some ones that we've had earlier. And some of them advertise on it. I'm not sure how true that is or to what extent that they're made from recyclable plastic, which is great. Yeah. So at least trying to not contribute to throwing more plastic into the environment. But I have to be, um, uh, have to be honest. I don't know exactly how they break down the biodegradable ones. So when they're breaking down, what, what's the percentage of, uh, retention of some of these longer chains that remain in the environment and, or maybe you don't have to give exact percentages, but how much of it is actually breaking down to the point where, uh, it could be safe for the environment? Yeah, that's it's a tough question because a lot of the research done is with pure bioplastics, right? Mm -hmm. So over 99% pure. So it's, uh, you know, PLA film, for example, it's all polylactic acid, polymerized polylactic acid, so just repeating units 
and those naturally break down their ester bonds, which are susceptible to water. So okay. it's just natural hydrolysis breaks apart these repeating units, which, uh, again, if it's still and not agitation, you're not encouraging that interaction. You can understand how that might take a little time, mm-hmm. unless you're in a super wet climate that gets tons of rain or water uh, exposure. So ones you buy at the store, right, are commercialized bioplastics, compostable plastics, and that's all proprietary information. So it's really hard to say how they optimize their breaking down because you won't get that type of information from the company. And rightfully so, it's proprietary information. That's how they make their money and uh, trying to distribute this positive product, uh, you know, uh, world-friendly products, uh, planet Earth-friendly, however you want to say it. But it's hard to say exactly how they optimize it because we have no idea what's in those products. Okay, so then I imagine because uh, it's not pure when you toss it out, then in terms of, you know, it's either mixed with some foods or it's got other contaminants within it, then degrading it becomes a bit more of a difficult thing because, as you said, that the degradation process is measured when it's in pure form. Yeah, well, that's in research, right? Right. So you you hope and assume that the companies are doing their, you know, studies to show, yeah, hey, we did some trials, whether it's with uh, associated landfills and their, you know, township, county, what have you. Um, you'd like to think that they're doing at the end of the day, I have no clue. I it's, it's hard to find, you know, a good proper study done on some of these biodegradable, I'm going to say bags. Uh, that's the one I've been dealing with most recently, but, uh, yeah, it's hard to measure cause you don't know what's in it. So traditional methods of say NMR to measure byproduct production becomes tough because the fact that a lot of them are say bound through ester groups means they're going to have you know, to some degree, similar byproducts. So mm-hmm. to say that this is, you know, an increase in this byproduct, you know, say on an MNR, NMR spectra is associated with, from an increase as, you know, mediated degradation of these bioplastics is pretty tough when you don't know what you're starting with. Going back a little bit to the degradation of it, you said it's done or the bonds break down because it's an ester backbone. Yeah. It breaks down by hydrolysis. Yeah. Is there ways to, let's say, expedite that process by using enzymes, for example? Um, yeah, so I uh, assume you've read the paper that uh, was started through that MyTax program. Yeah. Um, so, And that was their question. Is there anything, whether it's whole organisms? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen tons of headlines. There was one circulating around a couple months ago about a specific fungus that was breaking down plastic significantly. Uh, I think after 90 days, it was, you know, 60% or something, which anything, um, and going back to biodegradable uh, or compostable-based plastic versus petroleum-based or single-use, anything's an improvement from that, right? Something Fair that enough. never degrades, even if it only degrades in certain environments, at least it's the right steps in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but as for those headlines, I've seen tons of them lately, fungus, uh, different bacteria. So that's exactly what I was looking at is if we can, you know, we see these studies of 70 days, 120 days was another one I read. Can we even improve that more by taking out those enzymes from uh, this, you know, specific types of bacteria and fungus? And uh, that's exactly what I was doing with the uh, paper we had published in Polymers uh, from the funding from that my tax grant is just investigating whether this is even feasible, right? Uh, forget about any type of, uh, you know, significant scaling up of uh, 
breaking down bioplastic just can it even be done in you know an in vitro type of environment um so we were looking at uh, two enzymes one was shipped uh, graciously as a gift from uh, uh university in japan and what they did was isolate bacteria around a landfill and actually found a specific soil through agar plates emulsified with uh, bioplastic. And this is a common one to screen different bacteria and fungus mm. technique to do. And if you see a clearing zone, uh, that implies that's degrading the bioplastic. And they simply went in and tried to find the enzyme that was doing it. So they were nice providing that plasmid because it was uh, proof of concept already that they found the bacteria, they isolated the enzyme. But can we further identify that in an in vitro reaction, we can at least degrade the plastic? It wasn't uh, huge. We're seeing, you know, around 20% mass loss overnight. Again, there's always a little bit of, it was just simply using a really good mass balance. But then I coupled it with scanning electron microscopy here at the nanoimaging facility at Carleton University. And we saw a dose response that as we increased more enzyme concentration, more holes appeared in that bioplastic as a result of this enzyme slowly chewing away at it. So um, I'd like to think that 20% was uh, fairly accurate in that analysis. But again, anything's better than nothing, right? If you For get sure. 20% over a 24-hour period, an overnight period, versus waiting two months, three months for a fungus to slowly detach it, mm-hmm. uh, I'd like to think it's, uh, it's a nice outcome. Uh, but again, applying it to an actual system, let alone all the other variables that can affect that enzyme's activity, it's really easy to control the environment in a sealed tube in an incubator where you know exactly what's going in versus a common application of it in whatever industry you're looking at, uh, whatever practical application you're looking at with in the real world with tons of variables that you might not even be able to identify when you're first trying it out. I mean, it's a good first step because um, having the, the research in the lab is important for you to identify optimal conditions of which these biodegradable plastics can be degraded. So they discovered the enzyme in Japan. Did they do that based off of evidence that there were bacteria present that could degrade it? Or were they just kind of surveying the land where there was large sums of plastics that they, they were hoping to find something that could degraded uh it's interesting i don't know the exact narrative uh the first paper i believe was published in o2 there was two back to back it was identifying the bacteria and then identifying the enzyme and it's from the same group um and there uh i give uh acknowledgments and reference in the paper it was either i think it was o2 o3 so i actually don't know the narrative um didn't uh, communicate with them to that degree okay but uh yeah, it was around a landfill, and they did pull out the bacteria and uh, able to, on those agar plates that had the emulsified uh, plastic within it, saw, and they didn't, they screened, isolate a whole bunch of different types of bacteria, not just the one. Okay. They were ice, growing whatever they could and trying to selectively isolate before applying to the agar plates to try to identify, you know, one species or a mixture of species that represented the same, maybe... Uh, family of bacteria that uh, appeared to degrade whatever substrate they were looking for. And just for reference, uh, the paper of which you published is called Spectroscopic-Based Assay to Quantify Relative Enzyme-Mediated Degradation of Commercially Available Bioplastics. So in case anybody's interested to take a look at it, because um, you do some great research. So in regards to your findings in that paper, what were the optimal conditions that allowed the enzyme to thrive in the most? 
Yeah, I mean, most enzymes themselves function optimally, um, unless it's you know unique organisms such as uh, bacteria at the edge of underwater volcano or uh, sulfur vents, all that like stuff. Extremophiles. Exactly. Right. So if those might have different operating uh, temperatures, you know, such as TAC polymerase, for mm-hmm. example. Um, but a lot of them are going to function optimally around 37 degrees, right? Well, that's, and a lot of that just comes from natural temperature of the human body, right? Uh, it's definitely worthwhile taking the time to really screen at different temperatures because you might find an optimal temperature at which some of these enzymes uh, work favorably. But also you have to remember that a lot of these enzymes potentially don't target bioplastic naturally, that there's other substrates that are, it's, you know, has a lower association constant force. So it's going to bind tighter to these other substrates when in the proximity of them. So it's something you have to consider when actually measuring the degradation of bioplastic and then potentially throwing in other things to see if it antagonizes that natural activity. That's a good point, because if you're trying to do, do this in a, an environmental setting, it might not just be that bio, that one bioplastic alone. Yeah, for example, I don't think if you had a lake full of bioplastic, you can't dump a whole bunch of enzymes in there expecting it to eat it up to some you know measurable degree. You're going to see a lot of uh, those enzymes. Again, it's in water that you can't even control the pH for to some degree, right? So... Uh, the pH might throw it off the temperature of the lake. Maybe you do it in spring and it's too cold. Maybe it's too hot and those pr- enzymes begin to unfold a little, changing its conformational activity, and therefore it's uh, you know specificity to this off-target uh, substrate, which is the bioplastic. So I imagine in that example, the better option probably would be to remove the plastic from the lake, which is a lot of work, depending on how large the lake is, and- to remove it all and isolate it and then run the process well that's it and then you're also going to have to some degree clean it because that mm-hmm. it's going to bring its own whether it's algae bacteria maybe just uh, organic matter from the lake and you don't know how that's going to antagonize it either so it's really underestimated how difficult it actually is to degrade these plastics because not only you have these external factors of where these enzymes are but you also have to worry about or sorry not the enzymes where the bioplastics are but you also have to worry about cleaning them up and isolating them in order to truly be able to degrade them well that's it just making sure they're ready for optimal enzyme degradation uh which why it's a very tough research question of how to optimize it to that regard that's why a lot of practical cleanup initiatives out there are just removing physical um the netherlands seem to be really pushing that front of physical removing of the plastics or bioplastics in the environment. Again, I say bioplastics a lot as Canada makes that shift from uh, single-use petroleum-based plastics. Right. But uh, there's a lot of Dutch scientists out there. There's one guy who just goes up with the boat to the Pacific garbage patch, just throws in a specific net and skims the top of the water to clean out a lot of the uh, plastic contamination. There's other groups that are running tubes underneath a riverbed, for example, pushing air bubbles up at the right uh, consistency and uh, pressure that's pushing up plastic, and then it's pushing it to the side of the bed where they collect it just on a conveyor belt rolling. So there's a lot of initiatives out of the Netherlands with that type of research, which is uh, very cool. But uh, yeah, no, it's a lot with any type of whatever you're doing it's always easier to do it in vitro in a controlled dish whether it's this type of research whether it's molecular biology 
uh, biochemistry when you're putting it in a dish and you can control everything, the concentrations, uh, percentages, amounts of all the substrates, cofactors, inhibitors, whatever you're doing, enzymes themselves, versus applying it to an actual, whether it's a natural environment, natural ecosystem, living organism, what have you, and seeing if those results uh, are replicated or reproduced to some degree. I mean, it's a necessary first step. Well, and it saves you time if you're screening all these different enzymes in the real environment. You might miss something that might be feasible based on an environmental factor, local environmental factor that might uh, attribute to a decrease in that target, uh, whatever it's degradation, or again, if it's cell work, that target uh, pathway, for example, that you're trying to work with. Does food cycle science aim to use enzymes in their food cyclers? I don't know if they're using it now or they want to eventually in order to help a deg degradation, for example, of bioplastic material. There's so much work that still has to be done, right, mm -hmm. um, to even get to that point. Uh, you know, we're throwing in different types of food waste. So how do we know that food waste isn't going to antagonize and inhibit that enzyme's activity to the bioplastic? How do we even measure if the bioplastic is degrading in the food waste, right? right. That's extremely tough to do. Um, you know, short of using the pliers to pick out every single little piece, which is next to impossible because mm -hmm. you're getting such intense grinding. So there's a lot of questions that got to be addressed first. That's fair. And other research questions that I'm focused on as a, as the research manager of food cycle science before really diving into that. Uh, lots of little steps first. And the first one, for example, was the assay that uh, I developed because till then, uh, one of the primary points were, you know, NMR, these other SEM, which are really cost inhibitive, or doing agar plates, which you don't even know. They're traditionally for bacterial uh, screening. How would an enzyme itself be measured? And still, even with that, you're waiting, you know, 21 days, multiple weeks to get your results. So is there a quicker way that we can screen these in a short time in an overnight fashion? to at least uh, help screen what potential enzymes, such as the ones in the paper, are even feasible and uh, could potentially degrade you know, a target bioplastic. And then even what other bioplastic is it going to work for? Is it only one specific species? There's dozens out there. Is it a density thing? You know, Think about a bag versus cutlery. Cutlery is a lot more dense. How does that factor into things? So uh, to say that it could be applied is very tough. Um, but uh, there's lots of other cool things going on at Food Cycle Science that we're also looking into. What about the plastic plastic waste from research? That's oh, a that's... big problem because, I mean, I feel bad at times when I'm, you know, using pipette tips and tubes and different instruments to, you know, do the research that you have to do, but... Well, there's just so many different types of waste that comes from research. And you a lot of the times you need it to be sterile. So um, it's not like you can use the same tip that you were just pipetting, you know, non-virulent E. coli for protein or recombinant protein expression and then use it for pipetting your Millie Q water, you know, a day later. You need to get rid of that and dispose of it properly. So I don't know if there is an immediate answer to that short of you know localized collection of that type of plastic um, but now you're talking about a lot of cost and even collection you know you're talking trucks facilities safe um, 
especially if it's biohazardous, right? Who's collecting it? Is it done safely? You're not leaching anything into the surrounding environment around whatever storage uh, holding facility there is. So it does suck. But uh, same with, I mean, even hospitals, right? Think about the amount of plastic they produce. But you can't have someone who's, you know, sick or even like myself when I was in the hospital, you can't use existing equipment on the person next door who might have a sensitive immune system to whatever uh, condition or disease they're battling. So it's tough, but uh, I'm not too sure of immediate solutions to that short of collecting the exact same type of, whether it's biohazardous plastic or chemically exposed plastic and recycling it together with plastics of similar exposure really. I remember you said you went to a conference recently and did you find research that they were doing that interested you? Yeah, there was a lot. It was the Canadian International Food Safety, whose CFIST was the acronym. I forget what the last T is, if it's technology, but uh, it had a lot to do with food safety. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot on uh, picking up pathogens, a lot of people from government, a lot of people from academia. Uh, using different technologies, different uh, initiatives to try to pick up, whether it's adulterated food, such as maple syrup, as was in presentation, picking up different foodborne pathogens in different environments, you know, different exposures. There's a lot of cool stuff. Uh, we presented in the industry section, and that was nice because we had a good turnout of people because, again, not a lot of people, when they think of food production issues, they don't always think of the issues with food waste as well. I think that's been a long time coming because as landfills fill up, or especially around congested cities such as Toronto, the landfills are absolutely piling up. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be something to be done about it because you either start burning it, you start picking up new land, to, and then you're just going to ruin the land, the natural ecosystem there soon as you start dumping a whole bunch of waste and the amount and with the amount of waste from a household being food waste of you know 40 percent or something it's it's i think it was well received at the conference and a lot of people i think i we just wanted to have people walk away at least learning something right if not that then just be a little more mindful of how much food waste you can produce and how that can really negatively impact the general environment, not even locally, but, uh, you know, across Canada, across the world. And then ideally when we're in some, you know, restaurant or not restaurant, mostly in uh, food courts like Bayshore or Lobla or not Lobla, Bayshore or um, um, Saint Laurent, for example, you know, you finish your food tray, there's still a bunch of plastics on there and food leftovers. Ideally, you'd want there's be some system where you just toss it in a container, in a garbage container Everything on it is compostable or degraded, biodegradable, let's say, from the, let's say, bioplastics and the food itself. They can all be in one container that can effectively break it all down into environmentally safe material. I mean, that's always the uh, golden, you know, the dream, if you will. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot that has to go into optimizing that, right? And even if you throw the bioplastic in there, how do you know you're just not creating microplastics, right? Mm-hmm. Which is still going to give the same negative environmental impact. Just because you can't see it as obviously doesn't mean it's not there. So there's still, uh, still a lot of progress that has to be made before that type of adoption. But that's why we were, uh, recently received a grant from the Canadian Food Innovation Network 
a large grant to look into solutions for this type of problem because they do recognize uh, the CFIN group that mm-hmm. the food waste problem is big enough and something needs to be done about it. So any type of advancements, as I've been saying uh, today, any type of advancements, no matter how small, at least it's a step in the right direction. What we find today might influence what we do tomorrow and so on, what we find after that day. And hopefully trend us to a good progress of some type of solution that uh, is better than what is now, which is virtually sending it to a landfill. Uh, And again, as you said earlier, a lot of the recycling doesn't even end up in the proper recycling facilities. Mm -hmm. So any type of progress is good progress, right? That's a good point. If everyone can potentially, you know, separate everything out as best to their abilities and perhaps clean it before they separate it out, myself included, then Uh, that would that would probably help out the people that are working to recycle this waste because I imagine it makes their life impossible when there's a lot of waste in that uh, in those recyclable material. Yeah, well, I mean, it would take a army of people to separate, you know, a truck full of so a lot of the time it's okay this isn't a bat this area is not a good batch get rid of it so mm-hmm. um that's what i mean i don't i really don't know if what a good solution is right now because it's it's such a complex problem and every single batch you get is going to be different it's hard to standardize the input which seems to be the problem right and uh, you're not going to pay a whole team of people to sit there and fish through garbage and pulling out the right ones because you're just going to get backlogged with all the other trucks coming in so you got to do your best to keep things moving mm-hmm. so um that's why i mean any type again any type of progress is better than none because people are doing the best they can right now but uh, as we've seen in recent uh, data regarding you know whether it's ozone layer natural environments acidification of oceans uh, what we're doing isn't the best in the long run, so we got to make some type of advancements to better progress uh, and change that direction. Amen to that. Um, do you see yourself still in the same industry, working in the same industry in the next ten years? Do you have any aspirations for certain types of research that you still want to work on? Uh, I'm just happy to be doing research in this breadth in this field. Uh, it's funny; you think you're uh, going to end up somewhere your your whole. Uh, you know, for a few years there and wouldn't change a thing the way the path that I took. Very happy about where I'm at now. I'm using skills that I learned throughout my grad school and uh, to try to solve real life problems and a variety of different research I'm doing uh, with food cycle science. There's uh, a lot of initiatives we're taking on here to try to improve, uh, you know, food waste uh, sector in general and really try to make that transition away. Uh, which is the whole mission of the company and uh, it's a, it's an easy one to get behind so uh no it's hard i would i'd say yes because I, I really do enjoy what i'm doing but uh, if you would have asked me 10 years ago this is what i'd be doing i'd say get out of here <laughs> so um it uh so yeah that's uh that's my short blurb on that okay. and uh outside of all the research and you know difficulty collecting data and things working and not working uh do you have some hobbies that you'd like to enjoy oh i've been golfing a little too much this year hey nice uh, hitting the links quite a bit so that's been fun um we had softball teams other years but uh people move away from town it's hard to find enough people for a good team who can show up every week Uh, i'd like to get that going again but no just staying active i mean the winters are so long here in ottawa so whenever the summer comes around i feel everyone's in a great mood and wanting to get out and do stuff 
and uh, really just enjoying the summer right now. So it's quickly coming to an end, uh, unfortunately. But that brings on fall, which is always uh, fun as well. We should. Uh, I don't know if you're into table tennis. Oh, I had uh, actually to get my hand eye back after I lost my eye. We had a table tennis set up uh, in my basement as a kid so I put up the one half and that's how I got a lot of my hand eye back I'm also a goalie in hockey so hand eyes a little uh, critical to playing goalie in any yeah. sport let alone hockey with the small rubber puck firing at you mm-hmm. so really hit the ping pong table hard and nice. started going we should pick up a few sessions oh okay Close- challenge accepted <laughs> closing question uh favorite scientist that inspired you and why um I don't really know if I had a uh, Favorite scientist. I always just uh, loved the Discovery Channel as a kid, watching whatever was on there. You know, in terms of inspiration, both my parents worked their butt off for tons of years to give us a give us a great upbringing. So my mom did night school for ten years to get her bachelor's. So that really humbled me whenever I was wanted to even think about complaining, uh, choosing to do a PhD, um, and. Uh, the, not to say that it doesn't come with its own struggles. So there's definitely uh, some tough points along that path, but uh, that was really humbling uh, figuring that out. And uh, my dad also worked his butt off to uh, purchase the company he was working for as a forklift mechanic. So that was always very, uh, very inspiring. That no matter even raising a family, they could both do that and uh, build off each other. So that uh, that was always nice. And uh, my grandfather who passed away. He was. Took a lot of time as a kid to, you know, teach me fishing, the outdoors, and really stress about uh, the outdoors around us and how mm-hmm. critical it is to maintain its integrity and make sure the natural world around us stays healthy and happy. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. Thank, thank you for being on the podcast, no and uh, all the best to you in your research. Thanks for having me. Thank it, you. Uh, really honored, and uh, I think uh, you're going to go great places. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.